0: Dear Father, we thank you that you have preserved this record for us, that we can uh, learn from it, that we can learn who you are from it, that we can see you reflected in history, and that we know that history has a purpose and that it's leading somewhere, and that uh, we have the absolute guarantee through our salvation with you that we will see it arrive at that point. We thank you, Lord, that you have already resolved all things in your son, and we thank you that we have confidence for today as we trust in you. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. <coughs> I'm always really astounded at how the Spirit works. Uh, Mark, Ruth, and I do not confer with each other when we prepare the uh, Sunday school and the worship, and it's all the Holy Spirit working, and I really enjoyed the songs this morning, Ruth. Thank you. They, uh, They dovetail very well into this message of hope and confidence in God and in God's promises. So this morning we finally arrive at Noah in the text, and in Genesis 1 through 11, most of the time is spent on Noah. And there's a reason for this, because just like the beginning ended, so the end is going to end. So we see the first end of the world in the times of Noah. And we're told that the end of the world is going to be much like that time was. And we see ahead of that time this great expectation that all of these patriarchs had in the promises of God, that they are hoping for a savior. And they keep thinking they, they've got their savior with that next line, but God is always saying, Not quite yet. Not quite yet. But then, Jesus does arrive on the scene, and we look backwards on that. We have this hope of his finished promises already. We don't have to await to see who will this Savior be. We know exactly who he is. And we know that he is coming again, and he is going to rescue us before judgment. So our main point this morning is that God's judgment never comes too early. Sometimes we feel like it comes too late. Sometimes we feel like he's delaying too long. But it's always God's perfect timing. So we may be tired of waiting. We might feel weary waiting for the day of the Lord. But we always have rest available to us through the comforter that he's given us. We're going to see that Noah's name meant comfort that they expected a comforter. They expected it in their days, and they expected that that comforter would also rescue them. Well, we have that perfect comfort, that one who has rescued us. So once again, we look backwards on that, and we experience it every day. In fact, we not only have comfort for today, but we have comfort in the promise that we will be glorified together with Christ at the end. So we hold on to these promises that we see in the Old Testament. They should give us great encouragement. And so as we do a brief review of this genealogy that we've seen in chapter 5, because uh, I guess Paul should be happy, we uh, have no more lists of names to read until chapter 10. Uh, But it actually starts way back in Genesis 3.15. That's where our genealogy really starts. Because this is where we have the promise that the genealogy is purposed to explain. This is why we have a genealogy, because Genesis 3.15 anticipates one. Genesis 3.15 tells us we are going to meet a seed of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. But we also see in this promise that there is going to be enmity between the woman and the serpent, and between the seed of the woman, and between the seed of the serpent. Sometimes this is passed over, and we just look at the last part, just at the promise. But what we have described for us in the procession up to Noah is that battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In Genesis 4-1, Eve thought God had produced the final result of that promise. She said, now, the man, or she said, uh, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Now, we've talked about this a couple of times, that with the help of is not actually in the Hebrew text. The translators add it in to try to help you make sense of the text, and they actually make it a little more confusing in this case. Sometimes, they are helpful because sometimes there are reasons for those words, because English doesn't express something the same way as Hebrew does. But they're unnecessary in this text. It makes far more sense to recognize that Eve was trusting God's promise, having proper theology, but an improper application. And that expectation continued to her next son, after she saw that Cain was no savior. When we meet Seth, she recognizes Seth is not a savior, but Seth is no more and no less than God has promised. The seed through whom that savior will come. She recognizes that this is going to be a process. So Seth was appointed to her in place of Abel, not Cain, in place of Abel. And so the Genesis 5 genealogy The purpose is to get us from Seth to Shem. Because Shem is the next one who we are going to have that specific promise given to. See, we look back through these genealogies and we read into it that each one of these were the promised line. We have no guarantee that the parents of those children knew that they were the promised line. They were waiting on that single promise that God gave to Eve in Seth. And they knew that it would come from Seth's line. They didn't know which of their children it would be. When we get to Noah, it appears that Lamech knew that his son was part of that line. Once again, he makes the same mistake that Eve makes and over-expects on God's promise. He expects the application to be different than it is. But nevertheless, God is faithful, and through Noah comes Shem. And through Shem comes all of the Semites. You've probably heard the term anti-Semitic. It's a very common word used these days. That Semitic comes from this name, Shem. Those descendants of Shem, through whom we get the Hebrew race, through whom we get the Jewish people through whom we get our Messiah, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. God is faithful about his promises and he's faithful to record it so that we can rest in all the promises that have come before, that have been perfectly and accurately fulfilled, that we know that those promises yet unfulfilled, such as the rapture of the church will happen exactly as Scripture says, that we can trust, that we can hope in this. And it says, as we train our hope on this, we are purified. We are sanctified. So this list was given to us in a very regular format. So that, well, actually, there's probably a couple reasons why it was given to us in a regular format. Though it may have been written, it was also probably memorized at times. And repetition makes for easy memorization. But the most important reason is so that when the Holy Spirit diverges from this format, we pay attention, we recognize that something is happening. That happened first in Adam, where God was promising the appointed son, Seth, that through him, that final seed, the rescuer of mankind, the second Adam, would finally come And we see that each one of these names was important in God's prophetic plan and what was going on in their day. So Seth was the appointed seed. And with Enosh, where we have him in the generation where men started to die, we recognize man's mortality, man's frailty that although we have the promise of God, we still live in a fallen world, and man is still under the curse. Then we have Kenan, the acquirer, one who acquires knowledge, one who acquires abilities. Man in Seth's line is also learning, just as Cain's line was learning, but Cain's line seems to have an ungodly source for its knowledge. And Mahalalel, Praise God. Praise God for his promises. Mahalala was probably alive during the great revival. Spoken of uh, in Genesis chapter 4, verses 26. We see that their lifespans are declining. We saw that that was probably not environmental so much as genetic. As the gene pool becomes more corrupted by the curse, by the fall of man, sin having a physical toll on mankind, their ages are slowly dwindling. We're going to see a few jumps where the ages radically diminish. And these happen at bottlenecks, such as the flood, where only eight people survive, three different lines that produce children after that, three bloodlines. Then it's going to happen again at the Tower of Babel, where all of mankind is separated into only 70 bloodlines that begin to populate amongst themselves. But the second half of this genealogy is very strange. No longer do we have a steady progression of declining ages, but it seems to be all over the place. The three longest-living patriarchs are in this second half. We have the first patriarch, in fact the only patriarch and one of only few men who have ever been raptured, taken away before death. We have a lot of strange things going on here. We have Lamech, the first man to die in his 700s. We've had 900s and 800s so far. There's no pattern here. The pattern is broken. We pay attention. What's going on? And that's where we identify There is a problem. There is something happening on the earth among men, and God is working in history sovereignly to bring mankind through it and to bring his promises to perfect fulfillment. And so with Jared, whose name is Descent, we can see that this was most likely the time when angels came down and began to have intercourse with human women and produce children which are not human, which if they entered into the line of the coming Messiah, would taint that line so that he would no longer be a kinsman redeemer, so that he could no longer be the second Adam, sharing in the sin nature of Adam and not the sin nature of angels, because for angels, there can be no redemption only for mankind. We can't be dogmatic on when exactly this happened. We can only witness the, uh, the hints or the testimonies in scripture. But it seems most likely that Lamech's children were that generation that began to intermingle with angels. Specifically, Lamech's daughter, Naama, whose name was beautiful and is the first woman mentioned in any ancestral bloodline, save for Eve, who is the mother of all living. Naama is probably the mother of a different race. So I've given some tentative dates of when this might have happened. These are speculative. I am only claiming that I'm probably within a century of when it happened, based on the evidence. But the revival that happened in the days of Seth probably happened in the 300th century after creation. This was plenty of time for the first seven generations of Cain's line to be born. At least four five, and six generations occurred during this time. And then in the 500th, excuse me, 3rd century and uh, 5th century, not 500th century. In the 5th century after creation, this is probably when the watchers or the fallen angels came down to earth, those who will be reserved for a special judgment because of their special and unique sin. And so Mahalalel named his son Jared, or fallen, descended, in recognition of what was happening in history and how God was going to act sovereignly in correcting that. So if this happened in the 5th century, it takes God almost a 1,000 years more, 1,200 years, To finally bring judgment for this. 1,200 years of the world getting worse and worse and worse. Of sin raging over the earth. And I would even wager that this is increasing faster than sin is increasing today. Because there was no church in that day whose purpose is to restrain evil on this earth. And when that restrainer is taken away, evil is going to increase rapidly on this earth. In fact, when the church is taken away, we have, at minimum, seven years left on the calendar. It could be more. The rapture is not the same as the beginning of the tribulation. But how fast can evil increase in our time? So when the restrainer is taken away, how much faster will it increase? And then we had Enoch, whose name is Dedication. He's not the only Enoch that we see in Scripture. In fact, Cain had a son named Enoch. But rather than being dedicated to God as a prophet, he was dedicated to the work of his own hands. See, before Cain named his son Enoch, he named his first city Enoch. His son Enoch was probably named after his city, the greater work of his own hands. But here, we see this man named Enoch because he was dedicated to the preaching of God's word, and we get two prophecies from Enoch. The first one is not recorded for us until the New Testament. At least it's not recorded in canonized scripture until the New Testament. His prophecy was, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, etc. This is looking forward to the final judgment of this earth. Not the judgment which would come in Noah's day, But even from the very beginning of prophesying of judgment, the very end of this earth was in view. However, Enoch had another prophecy. This was localized. This was a specific prophecy for his generation. And that's why this is recorded in Genesis, that his son's name was Methuselah. This is one of the only sentence names that we get, where there's actually an active verbal form in the name. It's not made into an adjective. It's not made into a noun. It's an actual verb in his name that says, when he dies, it shall be sent. Enoch, the first prophet in the office of a prophet, names his son. When he dies, it shall be sent. And it is true that in the very year of Methuselah's death, judgment came on the earth. In fact, his son, Lamech, dies five years before the flood. But the longest living man ever recorded represents God's patience, but God's justice. That God will judge, but his judgment never comes too soon. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise. So as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What was God waiting for in those days before Noah? God waits until he can say that all flesh has corrupted itself. God waits until only eight are going to heed the call to repentance, to put their trust for their salvation in God and not in self. God is patient towards them. But we still have a few more patriarchs here. Lamech. Lamech is our ninth generation from Adam. And Lamech is a name which we've seen before. He was the seventh from Cain. Lamech's name is a warrior. In Cain's line, once again, there was a very different reason for his name being warrior. He was a violent man, one who was willing to kill just for a wrong done to him, not for any threat to his life. His vindication was his own. He did not wait upon the Lord to act in vengeance. He took it upon himself. He was going to do what God would not do for him but this warrior the son of methuselah and the father of noah we see in a statement he is going to make in a few verses here that his hope was in god's promise so we can assume that he as a warrior is not fighting for himself but for god in genesis 6:12 i think we get a clue as to why we needed warriors at this time in Earth's history. Why we needed valiant men? Because the Earth was filled with violence. Because of this angelic corruption on the Earth, for a thousand years, increasing and increasing and increasing, so that we should not be surprised that God needed some mighty men on the Earth to defend the line of the promised seed. Now, God could have protected this promised seed by hiding it. He's done that before. He's hidden a little boy in a cupboard to protect the seed line of the Messiah. But he's also used valiant men like David. He's used valiant men like Joshua. He's used wise men Like Moses, and righteous men like Noah. God has many quivers, or many arrows in his quiver. God is creative, and God never ceases to surprise us. Whereas Satan is not very creative, he uses the same tactics again and again. But we want to look at Lamech's expectation, Lamech's hope. Because his son is perhaps one of the most important men in history. I would say we could only say that of about 10 men if we want to really, really narrow it down. And Noah would be right up there. Because Lamech names his son with a very specific expectation. Lamech says, where uh, it says, now he called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The name Noah doesn't mean exactly rest. It means comfort but it is a very similar word. It's etymologically related to the word for rest. They are cousins, you could say. And Lamech is creating a play on words. This word for rest is comfort, as in compassion or sorrow or relenting. It's not necessarily rest and joy, but relief from pain. Lamech recognizes that there is going to be a restoration through this seed line. He recognizes that God is going to relent of the curse through the seed. But you know what? I think Lamech had no idea of the glory that is going to come through the seed line. That it's not just going to be God relenting, but God turning completely away from judgment towards us and putting all of that judgment onto this seed. We'll see a verse coming up in a little bit that says, Jesus Christ is our propitiation. It's a big word, and it packs a lot of meaning. But to simplify it, Jesus Christ is our wrath absorber. God is righteous. And God does punish for wrongs done. But thanks be to God that he has provided a seed who absorbs that wrath for us. Jesus Christ being the propitiation gives us comfort like we could never receive from Noah. And so Noah's name is Comfort. But Lamech... Oversteps a little bit in his expectations. And God is going to patiently correct this, this thought that Lamech has. Lamech says he is going to give us rest, but rest from what? From the consequences of the curse. He's going to give us rest from the work, from our work and from the toil of our hands, which arises from the ground that the Lord has cursed. Lamech does recognize that God cursed the land, not man. Man brings cursing upon himself by choosing not to follow God and not to trust in God's promises. Were man cursed by God, there could be no restoration of man. But he expects that through his son, Noah, these promises will be fulfilled. And I think the text limits that to, uh, to Noah. I don't think Lamech's expectation went beyond Noah. I think he realized that the world was ending. Time was up. A savior was promised. This must be him. Because Methuselah, his dad, was it. When Methuselah died, the end would come. So he looked at his son and said, No time. This must be him. Well, that curse that Lamech is speaking of is from disobedience towards God, sin towards God. In order to bring relenting of this sin, there had to be forgiveness of that sin. And who can forgive sin? Can a man forgive sin? Sin is not against man. Sin is an offense against God. God alone is able to forgive sins. That's one of the controversies about Jesus Christ in the Gospels, when he comes and forgives sin on his own authorities. The Pharisees rightly pushed back on this. They missed the signs that he is God, but they said... Can a man forgive sins? They were right. Can a man forgive sins? But this should have made them think. Then who is this man claiming to be? They did understand that he claimed to be God, but they did not believe the signs that he showed to prove that he was the Son of Man, the God-Man, Emmanuel, the promised Messiah. And so... Lamech is making a similar error as Eve. Proper theology wrongly applied. God did not say to Lamech that this is the one, this is the final culmination of that promise. He's going to do that to Mary. He will tell her that this is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the branch of Judah, And the lion, is it the lion of the tribe of Judah? The branch of David. But you know, God doesn't speak into this text to tell Lamech of his error. In fact, Noah is an allusion to Christ to come. But he is no Messiah himself. This should be evident in the text. As Noah began farming and planting a vineyard, now I kind of think this is a bit tongue-in-cheek. He's going to give us rest from the work of our hands, and here we see him after the flood working with his hands. But then he drank the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Is this the, uh, the activities that we expect of a Messiah, of a Savior? This leads him into sin. It leads him into cursing his grandchild. This is not the activity of a Messiah. This is the activity of a man. Because all men stumble, all men have the opportunity for restoration. And I believe Noah is restored, as we'll see when we get there in the text. He fell out of fellowship for a time. And so we fall out of fellowship occasionally. Thankfully, we have the same blood of Jesus Christ to bring us back into fellowship as we had to save us in the first place. It's just as valid for all of that. But Noah is no final seed of the woman. He does not crush the head of the serpent. But he does bring comfort. He brings comfort to the world that was ending, knowing that God is still faithful to his promises. But we do have one in whom there is overflowing help. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus Christ says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is offering rest. He's offering that comfort. And who is he offering it to but rebellious Israel, who is in the process of rejecting his final sign of the Messiah? He says to them, giving them yet a last chance to accept him, come to me. Judgment is coming. And judgment will come on Israel, has come on Israel for this sin. And there's yet judgment left in store for the last days. But he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This isn't necessarily rest from the toil of your hands, is it? This is proper theology properly applied. Because work was present before the fall. Noah wasn't planting a vineyard because he was cursed and had to plant a vineyard because of the curse. It mentions nothing about the thorns and thistles under the curse. This is very much like what Adam and Eve were probably doing in the garden. Work is a good thing. We were created to be busy. We were created to rest in our work. says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The difference of work in Christ is that it's not toilsome. This is the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. The second Adam, a better Noah, the perfect God-man. In Revelation 21.3, we see what perhaps Lamech thought he was receiving in Noah. Revelation 21, at the consummation of the world, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. God is dwelling among mankind again. And he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. I think Lamech was anticipating this sort of rest, but he had no idea how perfect that rest would be. In Revelation 21.5, John writes, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. He is making all things new. He's not just destroying the world with water in Noah's day, in fire in the judgment to come, but He is making all things new. And how do we know He's faithful and true? Because not one jot or tittle has disappeared from the Word of God, not one promise will have gone unfulfilled. This will be the final consummation of history and we will know that all things will be made new, that all things will be restored because God has promised it and we can trust God's promises. He continues and says, Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. This sort of relationship is one we could have never received from a man like Noah. But this sort of relationship is one that Noah himself longed for. This hope in God's promises, this hope in God's restoration, this is where Noah places his faith. In fact, we see in uh, Hebrews eleven seven, 11.6 that, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And this is bookended between who but Enoch and Noah. Enoch and Noah, the preachers before the flood, the prophets who warned of the coming judgment, but the prophets who walked with God the prophets who kept their hope on the world to come. Enoch, in that world that he would be translated into, and Noah, in the world he would be carried through judgment into. God protects his people. In 1 Peter 3.18, it said, For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits, now in prison. We'll come back to this verse in a bit. But look at the finality of the comfort of the help that we have in Jesus Christ. No wavering, no altering, it's finished. It's finished at the cross. Though we look forward to our glorification, we don't look forward with the question of if or maybe. We look forward with the same expectation of the veracity of what has already passed. Just as sure as what has happened already, so is our future guaranteed because it has happened already. Everything has been prepared. And so judgment does come, but we have no need to fear judgment. Just as Noah had no need to fear the judgment to come, he would rest safely in the belly of a ship that God led him to prepare. Noah had no need to fret. In fact, no one had any need to fret. They had only to listen to the Lord. Sadly, Only seven will, plus Noah himself. Noah is also an outlier in this genealogy, but we don't notice it because the intermission is so long. Noah's genealogy spans from chapter 5, verse 32, all the way to chapter 9, verse 27. It's a regular genealogy, other than the fact that between the announcement of the birth of his sons and the announcement of how long he lived after these events, we get three, three and a half chapters of what happened to him and his sons, to his sons Shem, Hem, and Japheth. The first one there is not the oldest. In fact, it goes middle child, youngest child, oldest child in this list because Shem is the important one. We'll deal with that when we get to chapter 9 or chapter 10. But we can almost take a breath of fresh air here and see he's gotten to Shem. And when Shem gets on that boat, we see, yes, God is absolutely faithful. God knows what he's doing. Think of it. How many relatives did Noah have alive at his, in his day? Yes, his father had died five years prior. Yes, his grandfather had died that very year. But how many brothers and sisters? For Methuselah, it said he had Lamech and he had other, other sons and daughters. What happened to Noah's aunts and uncles. For Lamech, it said he had other sons and daughters. What happened to Noah's brothers and sisters? Did they all miraculously perish before the flood so that they didn't go through judgment? Or was Noah really the only one left, with his children and God protecting them? So we've made it all the way from Seth down to Shem. 1600 years of world history. 1600 years minus one, maybe two of corruption. And God has brought judgment. Coming back to those spirits now in prison Peter tells us who they are. He says they are the, those who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Jesus Christ, when he descended into the earth and preached during his uh, time in the grave, he went to tell them of the judgment that had come the head of the serpent being crushed. It was finished, just as he said. In 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5, we see that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The angels in their angelic rebellion and the product of those seemed to be synonymous with those spirits in captivity. I think the entire world had corrupted itself and God had alone preserved Noah. Talk about... close call. But there's no close calls with God. God is not fast about his judgment. He does not jump the gun. But he also does not let one of his perish. Israel can hold on to that promise as well. The doctrine of the remnant is perhaps one of the most misunderstood, but one of the most important doctrines in scripture. I am yet to find a single place in scripture where the remnant is speaking of the church. The remnant is always Israel. I had a church in Korea that I I did like, I did enjoy. I had many friends there, but their catchphrase was, we are the remnant. No, you're not. No, the remnant is Israel. We can't strip that away from them. We also don't want to. They're going to be purified through fire. And it all happens because of their rejection of the Messiah, their rejection of that promised seed. When he comes and offers himself as the Messiah and they say, You operate by the power of Satan. In Luke 17, Jesus Christ promises them that in the days to come, there will be false prophets leading away, even the elect, Israel. And he says that his coming is going to be like lightning. When it flashes from one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. There will be no question when the Son of Man returns. But it will also be no time left. When the Son of Man returns, all that has happened before is set in stone. But what does he say? He says, first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Who is the he? The Son of Man. This language goes back to Ezekiel. The Son of Man was a particular term used by Ezekiel to speak of the coming Messiah. So the Messiah must suffer many things and be rejected. By whom? By this generation, first century Israel. The Pharisees and Israel, Jewish theology in the first century, had a real hard time with a suffering servant. Jesus Christ is not pulling any punches here. He is saying everything that their theology does not like. He is going to suffer. He's going to suffer at their hands. And judgment is going to come. He says, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day of day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now people look at this and say, how is it going to be obvious then? Here it says they're going to be eating and drinking and marrying. This doesn't look much like what we see in Revelation. Why would they be eating, drinking, and marrying? Why would they be going about their day-to-day business if judgment was coming? Because the signs of those times, they'll be desensitized to. What kind of marriage was going on in Noah's day? Is this everyday kind of marriage? No. I think what Jesus Christ is saying is all that has been given to man will continue to be corrupted. Even to the day of the Son of Man. So that all the preaching that the 144,000 will do during the tribulation period. Even against that, they will still be celebrating the persecution of Israel, the slaughter of the two witnesses in Jerusalem. There will be a a three-and-a-half-day party when the Antichrist murders God's two final witnesses. They will be partying. They will be having all sorts of marriages, not just God-ordained marriages. The end is going to look like the beginning. The second judgment is going to look like the first. Israel is going to be saved out of it, though. Israel has that guarantee. Israel has that promise. We have the promise, like Enoch, of being taken away before judgment. The remnant has the promise of being carried through judgment safely to the other side. In Leviticus 26, to the same generation that receives the book of Genesis, (laughs) Moses writes that if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers, I think he's speaking here of the remnant in the last days, that the remnant, when they confess their rejection of the Messiah and the rejection of their forefathers, the first century Israel, who rejected the Messiah in their day, in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me. I also was acting with hostility against them. God acted in judgment against Israel. They've gone through multiple cycles of judgment. To bring them into the land of their enemies. That's happened multiple times as well. Or if their uncircumcised hearts become humbled, so that they then make amends for their iniquity. Notice in here, perhaps it's not as obvious in the English, but iniquity here is singular. He's not talking about their sins, plural. There is one iniquity that Moses is concerned with here. And Israel had one responsibility. And the purpose of the law was to point them towards the identification of the king who they were supposed to enthrone, who would be the second Adam, who would be the promised seed, the restorer of Israel the Redeemer of the world. And in rejecting him, they committed the unpardonable sin. They committed that sin that only first century Israel has ever committed, which was the rejection of the offer of the kingdom by the Messiah who was on earth. He is coming again, and they will not reject him again. Many individuals in Israel will, and that's why we have a duty to be ministering to them. As the church, we recognize that the gospel was given first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. We have a responsibility to be sharing the gospel with, with our enemies for the sake of the gospel. But, you know, they ought to be brought into the fold of God through the saving work of Jesus Christ. That offer is to them first. There's a reason in Luke 10... Jesus Christ says, go only to the sons of Israel and tell them that the kingdom of God has come. The offer was to them first. In Leviticus 26, he continues, if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. It's an interesting tidbit there, isn't it? Today we say the land doesn't belong to Israel. Yes, it does. It always has. God gave it to them. And whose land is it to give? It's God's. They will be restored to their land. Their hearts will be circumcised. They will be regenerated. And their king will reign over Jerusalem and over the whole world. But this is the doctrine of the remnant. That when they confess their sin, the rejection of the Messiah, at the end of the tribulation period, at that point and not a moment sooner, Jesus Christ will return in judgment. In Ezekiel, we see a lot of these strings come together. In chapter 4, 14, starting in verse 13, we see Ezekiel's prophecy of a future judgment on Israel, not the one that they were undergoing at the time of the Babylonian captivity, but one that would come in the future. And what does he say? He says, the son of man... If a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, and send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they depopulated it and became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts, though these three men were in its midst, midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on that country and say, Let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. We see a pattern here, right? Righteousness is on the individual basis. For trust in whom? The Messiah. Jesus Christ, only those who place their faith in the Messiah can be saved. God does not have grandchildren, only children. Or if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath and blood on it to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, They could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem. This is speaking of the future judgment during the tribulation period. Sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it. The persecution of Israel in the last days is going to be unlike any persecution they have ever endured, where two-thirds of them will be cut off. During the Holocaust, one-third of them were killed. During the tribulation period, two-thirds of them will be massacred. This is going to be a horrible judgment. But thankfully, Ezekiel has more word from the Lord, yet behold, those words are usually very welcome in Ezekiel's prophecy, yet behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters, behold, they are going to come forth to you and you will see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon it. They will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions, for you will know that I have not done in vain whatever I did to it, declares the Lord God. No judgment is undeserved by the Lord. But no judgment is without purpose either. God's righteousness will reign. And those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, taken his righteousness upon them. Those will be saved. So Israel today is in unbelief. There are Jews who do believe in their Messiah. But by and large, Israel is in unbelief today. And we have the guarantee in scripture that this will not always be the case. But through the fire, they will be converted. They will turn to their Savior, to Jesus Christ, who is also our Savior. And He will rescue them, He will carry them out of judgment, just as God carried Noah out of judgment. And so for us today, we look back and we look forward to God's promises. To those fulfilled, to those not yet fulfilled, but equally guaranteed. And to those that aren't for us. Like those that promise salvation at the end of the tribulation to Israel. The remnant who will be carried through judgment. We look to our application and we see that it's coming much sooner than anyone could expect. In Romans 8, starting in verse 9, Paul writes, However, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. Something has already taken place to change us. Something has already begun to work in the body of the church. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, well, Ephesians 1 tells us that The Spirit dwells in all who have believed, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So if we have believed, the Spirit of God dwells in us. And this is true of all of us who are part of the body of the church. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, Now, does this say the body was dead, but it will be alive? No. It says the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. There is something that has already taken place in our bodies as Christians. Something that sets us apart. As the writer of Ephesians, the same writer, says, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Because this is true, our salvation from judgment is also sure. Because these are already completed on our behalf. We have only to realize them. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. That same spirit which rose Jesus Christ from the dead is the same spirit that is already dwelling in us, so that death can also not hold us. The same spirit which rose Christ from the dead will raise us from the dead as well if we happen to die before the Lord returns. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. All of creation groans for that restoration. The same restoration Lamech thought he had in Noah. Noah was a very important link in the chain. And it gets us to this perfect glory that we will have together with Jesus Christ. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of the sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's only the fleshy stuff that we're waiting to have restored. We are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are already indwelled with the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. We have been baptized in death together with him, and we have been raised together with him. The church is in a very special place. A place where we have the opportunity to be the restraint in this world against the tide of evil. So we don't want to be silent. Noah preached for 100 years, 120 years. And how much fruit came from that but his own children? Just his own children. If that's the best we can do, that's wonderful. Because all we do is plant and water. But who gives the growth? But God. We're to be faithful about our job, which is to share the gospel that same gospel which saved us, which changed us at the moment we believed so that all these things become true of us. And so we eagerly await with anticipation for something that has already happened, but not yet been realized in our bodies. For we hope, for in hope, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. C.S. Lewis said something once that kind of stunned me, but the more I thought about it, it made a lot of sense. He says, in heaven, or heaven is the most hopeless place. What did he mean by that? There's no more need for hope. Hope is the expectation of things not yet seen. But when we are face to face with the Lord, we will have something we, will, we have never had before the absence of hope and perfect joy. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And don't we ever wait eagerly for the return of the Lord, for the adoption of the sons and the redemption of our bodies, for glorification together with him. So that in Romans 8.36 we read, For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We do undergo persecution. We have it lucky here in the States that we have not endured much persecution. can think of quite a few other places around the world, and it seems to be adding every day those Christians who are Persecuted. We pray for our dear friends in Ukraine. But they can hold on to these promises as well. That although they are like sheep to be slaughtered, in all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer. This is a single word in the Greek, huper nikao, which means over, huper, nikao, Conquer. We conquer above and beyond what we could ever expect, but not without the last phrase, through him who loved us. We are conquerors. We are victorious, not by our actions, not by our adherence to the expectations of a Christian but simply through faith alone in Christ alone. We have the expectation that we act on this, but we are overcomers by nothing more than the blood of Christ. That has already conquered all that could ever come against us. So that Paul can say, I think some of his most encouraging words, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even you can take you out of the grip of Jesus. Not even you can take you out of the grip of God the Father. You are eternally secured you are changed at the moment of faith. You will be rescued before judgment. Israel will be rescued through judgment. But we want as many of those in the world around us, both Jews and Gentiles, to hear this word that saved us so that they too can be rescued. Because Israel doesn't need to go through the tribulation either, they will as a nation, but the individual believer has every opportunity that we have as well. In 1 John 1.9, we have this guarantee of what Christ has done for us so that because it is done, we, we never have to be out of fellowship with him. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful, absolutely trustworthy. There is no question about his forgiving. When we agree with him that our sin is indeed sin, that is all it takes to restore our fellowship with him. And not only is he faithful to do it, but he is righteous to do it. What does that mean? But he has every right to do so. No matter what sins have separated us from fellowship with Jesus Christ, nothing can keep us away from him. There is no sin too great, no sin too powerful, to overpower the blood of Christ. He has every right to forgive our sins. He is the God-man. He shed his blood on our behalf. He is the second Adam. He is our advocate with the Father. Advocate comes from the same, or advocate means essentially a lawyer. He argues our case before the Father. As Satan accuses us, before God. So he argues our case, and how does he argue it? But by the fact that he has already taken the punishment for that sin. There is not one sin we have committed, are committing, or will commit, that Jesus Christ has not paid for. There is not one sin that can keep us from the throne room of God, because he has torn down that barrier in his body, and he is the propitiation for our sins. So our takeaway this morning, the Lord is not quick to judge. Judgment is sure, but he is not quick to bring about those consequences of judgment while there is the opportunity for some to come to faith. He's going to cut the days short in the tribulation period for one reason, because there may be none left alive if he didn't. So greatly will the population dwindle in those last terrible days that those who have not made a decision for Jesus Christ are going to dwindle in number so that judgment is going to come just like it came before. The ungodly will be marrying and giving in marriage, eating and drinking and partying and celebrating their destruction of this earth. But the Lord is going to come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all the ungodly. So he will judge this world, but all who are found having his righteousness. Including the remnant of Israel in that day, who have been, right, all who are found having his righteousness have perfect comfort, both then and even now. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are our comforter. We thank you that you have given us the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to walk with us daily, that as we walk in the Spirit, we are sanctified by the Spirit. We walk in fellowship with you. We thank you that as we have our hope trained upon your future glorification of us together with you, that we purify ourselves. We pray that we have opportunities and that we walk in those opportunities to share the gospel, the good news of your son's death, burial, and resurrection, so that we know that we have died, been buried together with him, and resurrected a new life. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen.